Okay, first of all, what's with the getting drunk thing? Like, what if I don't want to get drunk or can't get drunk? Second of all, like, who are you kidding? No one's actually getting confused about whether Mordechai or Haman is better. And lastly, while we're figuring all that out, how exactly am I supposed to live a spiritual life when material reality is so gosh darn complicated? Welcome to Consciously podcast focus on honest conversations for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Here's our host, Menachem Poznanski. Hey, Consciously family, welcome back. Oof, great to be here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, excited to throw in an idea about Purim, maybe something to think about. Uh, but first, before we get there, thank you for joining us. Do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review on Apple. Um, you can check us out on social media at The Light Revealed on Instagram or Facebook. You can reach me at Menachem Puzz on Instagram. I check that once in a while. And you can email us at consciouslythepodcast at gmail.com. I'd uh, love to hear from you. Also, uh, check out our books, Stepping Out of the Abyss, Jewish Guide to the Twelve Steps, and Consciously, Six Steps to Living Vibrantly with Our Creator. Really excited to announce I submitted a manuscript to Mosaica for another book, so thank God, hopefully, that'll come out at the end of the year. Jewish year. So, we'll see. Lastly, uh, share this with your friends. Let people know, anyone who might be interested in what we are saying, that is surely the best way to grow this family. Okay, so Perm's about Adelaide. We've done a few episodes. It's a good episode back from our first season, I guess, kind of the first period. Uh, with Rabbi Shays Tao, we came by the office and we had a really nice discussion uh, about Adeliada and how that relates for people that are, let's say, not drinking, particularly recovering addicts and alcoholics who are not drinking, like what the avoda is of Adeliada. But I, I wanted to give a maybe a different take that I've been thinking about a lot. And and that relates to how the idea of Adeliada, which is until the place where a person doesn't know, the frame there for anyone who's not kind of initiated, is Adeliyada bein Arham and the Baruch Mordechai. And that a person has to become so inebriated in Purim or on Purim that they begin to lose context for the separation between the blessings of Mordechai and the curses of Haman, right? That a person starts to lose consciousness about that. And we've talked about it a few different ways here on the podcast, and it's, there's interesting spiritual kind of ways of framing that. But one of the things I've been thinking about a lot this year, and kind of posted in my in the uh, post we did on the Light Revealed, has to do with the way in which Adel Yadda has a lot to do with surrender, from the context of how it's discussed in twelve step recovery and in other in other frames, um, which is surrendering everything we think we know about life. You know that we kind of develop this narrative about what's supposed to be and what should happen or what will bring us happiness. And a lot of the story of Purim, as we'll talk about here, has to do with the fact that we don't know anything. That if you were to look at the Purim story in the midst of the 11-year narrative that occurs in the Megillah, you would think that, for example, Esther being kidnapped into the palace was bad, or Haman ascending to a place of being the highest minister in Ahasuerus' court would be bad, or Haman building a gallows for Mordechai and then traveling to the king's house in the middle of the night to get permission to kill him would be bad. And all of those things ended up being good. So a lot of times when we're trying to approach life from a spiritual frame, 
it means we have to let go. But before we get there, I want to talk about this idea of letting go and the way in that in which that's framed in kind of Jewish texts is the idea, the spiritual idea of Mesirat Nefesh, of turning oneself over to God and also the willingness physically to, you know, self of self of self-sacrifice. You know, the the countless examples in Jewish history of Jewish people who were faced with the prospect of either, you know, forgoing the principles of Torah or death, who chose death. And that's a that's a very respected thing from within the framework of Torah and really throughout the world and throughout the, the world of spirituality and religion, et cetera, et cetera. When people are willing to give themselves up for a cause, that's considered a really powerful thing, right? So that plays out in two frames. There's like the way in which people are willing to give themselves up for a cause theoretically or spiritually, right? Meaning like I, a person dedicating their lives to spiritual principles is misiras nefesh, is giving of, of, up of oneself, or even dedicating oneself to a particular cause, right? Obviously there's action in that, but they're not physically giving up of themselves. They're giving up of their time. They're giving up of their energy. They're dedicating themselves to that cause, which means saying that, that the needs of that cause or the needs of that movement or the needs of that group is supersedes to some degree their own personal needs. And in the holy books, that's called Mesiras Nefesh Beruchni, right? Like spiritual, spiritual self-sacrifice. And then there's Mesiras Nefesh, Mesirat Nefesh Bepoel, right? Which means actual self-sacrifice, meaning a person actually giving up their life for a, a cause of good, right? Whether it's a soldier fighting for a country or a person risking their life for the well-being of another or the countless examples in Jewish history of Jews who literally gave up their lives for the sake of their beliefs. So I, I want to understand that a little bit. That's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. But before we get there, there's another frame here. And all of everything we're going to talk about emerges from a mimer, a, a Hasidic discourse that was said by the Lubavitch Rebbe in 1952, shortly after he became Rebbe. And it's based on a teaching that he's extrapolating, he's kind of pulling out from, from his, his saintly father-in-law. So one of the main themes of Purim is the idea that the Jewish people on Purim in some ways completed the process of receiving or accepting the Torah into their lives. The language is kiblu asheri chilu asos, right? It means they, or kimu kiblu, right? So Chazal teaches us that that signifies the fact that the Jewish people in the story of Purim, both before um, they overcame Haman, and Mordechai and Esther became the premiers of the Persian government. Before that, there was a certain receiving of the Torah or accepting of the Torah. And then also after, there was a, a certain finalization of the Jewish people's receiving of the Torah. And that like begs the question, like, so what was different about the receiving of the Torah by Harsinai, right, which is when we first received the Torah, which somehow was limited, and the receiving of the Torah that occurred by Purim? So what, what the Friedrich Rebbe, what the, the father-in-law of the Lubavitch Rebbe explains is that by Harsinai, the receiving of the Torah came along with a measure of Mesirat Nefesh, but it was a Mesirat Nefesh Beruchni, meaning the Jewish people theoretically accepted upon themselves, not theoretically, they literally accepted upon themselves in a theoretical fashion that they were going to live by the principles that God was putting forward, right? That they had turned their will and life over to God in a theoretical manner. And that on Purim, there was a turning over on an actualized plane, 
meaning that the Jewish people were facing the possibility of extermination. And in that moment, which the Alta Rebbe of Chabad, the, the Balatanya in Torah Or, explains, based on the Medrash, that the Jewish people could have foregone the Torah in that time, meaning they could have uh, abandoned their Judaism, living in the Syrian, living in the Persian Empire, and that they would not have faced the the death, right, of men, women, and children that they were facing from Haman, right? That the that it was conditional. It wasn't a, a racial extermination, but rather it was an ideological extermination. So that when Chazal teaches that Mordechai gathered together 22,000 children to learn Torah, they were actually doing so in a way that was forbidden or looked down upon and actually opened the door for them to be at risk, right? So that their receiving the Torah and accepting the Torah was a Mesirat Nefesh Bepoa. And, and if you think about it, like historically speaking, and this is not the way we always kind of conceptualize these things, but Previous to Purim, the Jewish people had never really been threatened in the way in which they were on Purim. This really represents the first time a hostile nation infringes upon the autonomy and individuality of the Jewish people to practice their religion. Previous to Purim, right, because Purim occurs in the period that right after the destruction of the first temple. So previous to Purim, right, a, when the Jewish people were in, were in Israel, whenever their enemies attacked them, it was there was a political association to that. It was one nation attacking another nation. And then after the destruction of the temple, right, the Jewish people are now a dispersed nation, right? Which and it's unclear what they are. Are they a creed? Are they a religion? Are they a people? Are they a race? Do they have a sense of nationhood? They've lost their land. Do they still have a sense of nationhood? In fact, Many of the commentators discuss the way in which part of the conflict that occurred for the Jewish people at the time of Mordechai and Esther was that there was a question about whether and how they were obligated to keep Torah and mitzvahs, right? And the logic behind that was that, well, they they were no longer in the land of Israel, and the Torah was given in order for the Jewish people to go into the land of Israel and live as a nation according to spiritual principles, and now they were outside, they were in Gullus. Right? So once we go back to Israel, once we're redeemed, we'll keep the Torah. But who says we have to keep the Torah outside of Eretz Israel? Now, obviously, Chazal show us, and Mordechai and Esther exemplified the fact that a Jewish person has to keep up with the ideals of Torah to the best of their ability. Right? We can't do Karbanos outside of Eretz Israel. We can't do Trumos and Maisros. We can't keep Shemitah, and we can keep it to some degree, but we can't keep it in its totality. Right? There are many mitzvos that we cannot keep. However, we are obligated to keep as many mitzvos as we can, right? But that reflected, that's something that we take for granted. But at the time, at the time of the historical moment that Purim occurred in, that wasn't necessarily so clear, and you can understand why that's the case. So here the Jewish people stand. It's the first time an external nation is seeking to kill the Jews purely for spiritual slash religious reasons, and they could have abandoned the Torah, and they would have been saved. And maybe they could have made an argument that that would have been legitimate. And yet the Jewish people leaned in and said, no, the Torah, we accept the Torah as is with all of its consequences. We are Jews no matter what. And that, the Friedrich Rebbe, the father of Lubavitch Rebbe explains, is the difference between Purim and Sinai and why Purim exemplifies the, the full completion of the acceptance of the Torah because 
Purim has that factor of Mesiras Nefesh Befalo, right? Which means self-sacrifice in actuality. Now, the question that comes up immediately for kind of being intellectually honest is why was that important? Why does Mesiras Nefesh, why does the Mesiras Nefesh of Purim complete the process? Why is Mesirat Nefesh so vital in general? It's only, as we know, one mitzvah in the Torah, even as the Rebbe points out in this discourse, you know, even though there are certain uh, commands that come along with an obligation to give up one's life um, when, if somebody were, let's say, threatened, for example, if someone says to you, kill this person or I'm going to kill you, you're not allowed to kill them. That's one of the three cardinal sins. But even that is not a fulfillment of the mitzvah, of the command to be Moser Nefesh. That is a detail of the obligation not to kill, meaning you have to go so far not to kill that you're even willing to die yourself. So if Mesirat Nefesh, if the idea of self-sacrifice, of giving one's life or surrendering one's life in the name of what's right, in the name of God's will, is a vital mitzvah in the Torah. It's only one vital mitzvah. Why is it that the Torah itself only has fulfillment, only is complete, and the receiving of the Torah by the Jewish people is only complete when we are in a state of Mesiris a state of complete and total self-sacrifice, befalal, in an actuality. So in order to understand this, we have to take a look at the frame with, within which our universe exists. And what that boils down to is that there's really kind of three areas of reality. There's a material reality, right? There's the reality that we exist in a material universe, a world of things that are separate from one another. There's a spiritual reality, which is inclusive of concepts and ideas and principles, but maybe even spiritual forces, perhaps even mystical beings. And then there's a third paradigm. And the third paradigm, the third kind of nature or quality in the universe is that space where spirit and material meet, where they kiss, where they kind of come together in a really powerful way. Now, the idea of spirituality and materiality coming together is something, at least from within the framework of Judaism, that is really a novelty of Sinai. Before Sinai, there was an idea of serving God, living spiritually, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc., etc., in the teachings of Chazal and our tradition, fulfilled the mitzvos. They tapped into these spiritual energies, these pathways of connection to God. Uh, there was a frame on a spiritual plane of not worshiping idols. There's also the seven Noahide laws. So there's a sense of like spiritual rules by which the universe operates. However, what existed during the time of Avram, Isaac, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was that material and spiritual were two separate things, meaning the material world is material. It's that which is separate. In that frame, it's really separate from God. It's separate, distinct beings, entities, concepts from the all unity that is God. And then there's that which is spiritual, which is that which is unified with God, connected to God. And in that universe, in that frame, spirituality and materiality don't mix. You might use a material object to do a spiritual thing, but the material object remains material, and the spiritual concept remains that, the ethereal concept. The novelty of Torah is the idea of making spiritual material and making material spiritual, 
making spirituality practical. And the example of that in Judaism is the way in which a material object, like the tefillin or an esrog on sukkis, literally is infused with spiritual energy. There's something holy about it. You can have a material object that in and of itself is holy. You can even have a material object that makes other things holy. That was really an entirely new paradigm that was introduced within the Torah. And part of the path of Torah, and particularly Pnimisa Torah, is finding ways in which we can infuse materiality with spirituality and give spirituality material expression through material objects and realities. Now, how does that occur? How can they be together if they are opposites, right? Material being that which blocks off or separates from the spirit, and spirituality that which transcends the limitation of materiality. How can those possibly go together? So the answer that's given within the frame of Pneumius Torah and Chassidus in particular, is that the only way in which materiality and spirituality can come together is if a force, a power greater than the two, demanded that they, found, that they find peace, which is what God demanded in the giving of the Torah and the drawing of the light of Torah into the world. So what is that power? That power is the infinite light of God that exists above the material and above the spiritual. And that power allows for the marrying or facilitates the marrying of material and spiritual. So that when the material transcends its material reality and becomes spiritual and yet stays material, and when the spiritual finds expression within the material lens of reality and yet remains spiritual, there is a revelation of the infinite light of God. When we, through the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot, marry the two, we reveal that the lines and boundaries between material and spiritual are not really there because God said so, because God demanded that the universe transcend the rules within which he created it. And that is the essence of what the Torah revealed. And that, in and of itself, essentially, as we reveal that, as we try to live that out by living a life of Torah and mitzvot, we are actually when we're focused on that, revealing the infinite light of God, meaning the aspect of God that exists above the rules and rhyme and reason of material and spiritual reality. Now the question is how, so how does that work? How can we reveal the infinite light of God? So what Hasidus explains is that the infinite light of God can only be truly revealed when we let go of what we think we know. On the one hand, as we were discussing, letting go of the fact that we know that spirit and material can't be mixed, but also letting go of everything we expect to be true, or everything, the narrative that we demand play out. And when we lean into the, to the impossibility of a materially spiritual and spiritually material reality, which is the Adaloyada of Purim, right, then the possibility of the revelation of this Orein Sof that comes through Torah and is revealed through the Jewish people fulfilling and living in that Torah becomes possible. So the power of Purim is letting go. The Adaloi Yada of Purim is the, the spiritual power and discipline of letting go of what our minds tell us must be true. You can't mix spirituality in real life. You can't be spiritual in 2022. You can't ardently hold on to religious values, ideas, and rules to the best of your ability and be spiritual at the same time. The best you can will never be enough. 
as we let those things go and launch into a spiritual life mindlessly against the fear and reason that tells you it won't work. And instead we find out that, in, that you can do it. That's Adelayada. See, Purim represents the first time the Jewish people face the grim possibility of trying to live piously, spiritually, in exile, in constriction, in limitation. Mordechai and Esther reveal that the key to living in that space, to living in that state of constriction and yet transcending both materiality and spirituality, in spite of the fact that we are not in the Holy Land, we do not have prophecy. We do not have a, a temple with overt, revealed miracles going on every day. And yet we still can remain spiritual. Mordechai and Esther revealed that the key is to keep yourself focused on what's right and what's decent, even when it seems that that can't work. That you need to let go of what you think the narrative should be and focus on letting God work through life. And what you'll find is all sorts of mysterious things occur. So you see, we have to let go of the pre-prescribed narrative that we have established for our lives and begin to ride the wave of the story that God is telling in and through us. The narrative of the Megillah is full of moments when Mordechai and Esther easily could have abandoned what they knew they should do or what they knew that God called them to do and instead engage what made the most sense. Instead, leverage the influence and control that they had to try to make things be the way it needed to be. Instead, they let go. Mordechai gathered together 22,000 children to learn Torah. He sat in the king's courtyard wearing sackcloth. Esther fasted and did tshuva before she went to the king, knowing that the king had not called her and that in, instead her life was in peril. Even in the narrative, there's a fascinating moment where Mordechai is talking to Esther, his niece, who now is in the, one of the highest positions in the land for a country that just established a law that they're going to kill all the Jewish people. And he asks Esther to intercede for her people. And Esther says she can't. And Mordechai's response, it's mind-blowing. He doesn't appeal to her compassion. He doesn't beg her. He instead says, God is going to save us. You can either choose to be the vessel that God has placed, or we will be saved and that will amount to your peril. He speaks in a very intense, a harsh way because he believed with a conviction that I need to do my part and let God do his. And in the end, everything that seemed like it was bad turned out to be good. And everything that seemed impossible turned out to be possible. And Mordechai and Esther in the story go from being in a place of abject powerlessness to a place of tremendous influence to advocate for their people, and to be leaders to help the Jewish people emerge out of that place of darkness, of Gullus, and ultimately into a place where they return to the land of Israel, albeit not in the way that they were in the land of Israel during the, the time of the first temple. So when we draw that into our own personal spiritual life, when we do that, when we offer ourselves and our lives to God with a sense of spiritual abandonment, we reveal a power and light that is above the limits. We reveal the infinite light of God that makes it possible to live materially spiritual and to live spiritually material. We tap into a power far greater than ourselves, which allows us to live an elevated life that otherwise would have looked impossible. We find the strength 
to live a truly spiritual life. And all of that is hinged on tapping in to the spiritual power of Adaloyada, the revelation of the Orient Sof, the marrying of spirit and material. Whether one needs to get drunk to access that, to drink a lot of alcohol, or, or one can take a few moments, lie down, take some deep breaths, and try to forget everything they think they know, to have a new and entirely fresh experience of Purim of themselves and of God, it doesn't matter. It's tapping into this infinite power the power of Mesirat Nefesh, the power of self-sacrifice and surrender, to hopefully come to know something beyond our wildest dreams. I think that's the message of Perm. So, I want to wish you a Freilich and Perm, and I'll catch you on the other side. Thank you for joining the Consciously family. Consciously is brought to you by The Light Revealed, a social media publisher bringing messages of Jewish spirituality and recovery to whoever is looking for them. Consciously is made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tzipora Bas Ravaro. Our producer is Morty Schwartz, our audio engineer is Alps, and our artwork is by Tani Puz. Our social media team is led by Tehil Nassanian with help from Zoe Poznanski. The assistant to the regional co-host is Shmaya Hanekman, and our music is by Eitan Katz featuring Zushi. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We love connecting with you, so please feel free to email us at consciouslythepodcast at gmail.com or private message us on Instagram or Facebook at the Light Revealed.